becoming social is a major transition in evolution. It's tied to multicellularity. It's tied to evolution of eusociality. So I think understanding very broadly why things are social takes us some distance to understanding evolution in general and biology in general. Over 100 years ago, Sir Francis Galton asked 787 villagers to guess an ox's weight. None of them got it right, but averaging the answers led to a near-perfect estimate. This is a textbook case of the so-called wisdom of the crowd, in which we're smarter as collectives than we are as individuals. But the story of why evolution sometimes favors sociality is not so simple. Everyone can call up cases in which larger groups make worse decisions. More nuanced scientific research is required for a deeper understanding of the origins and fitness benefits of collective computation, how the complexity of an environment or problem, or the structure of a group, provides the evolutionary pressures that have shaped the landscape of wild and civilized societies alike. Not every group deploys the same rules for decision-making. Some decide by a majority, some by consensus. Some groups break up into smaller subgroups and evaluate things in a hierarchy of modular decisions. Some crowds are wise and some are dumber than their parts. And understanding how and when and why the living world adopts a vast diversity of different strategies for sociality yields potent insights into how to tackle the most wicked problems of our time. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute the world's foremost complex system science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is Albert Cow, a Baird Scholar and Omidyar Fellow here at SFI. Cow came to Santa Fe after receiving his PhD in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Princeton and spending three years as a James S. McDonald Fellow at Harvard. In this episode, we talk about his research into social animals and collective decision-making, just one of several reasons why a species might evolve to live in groups— What do the features of these groups or the environments they live in have to do with how they process information and act in the world? Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. Applications are still open for the 2020 Journalism Fellowship, the Global Sustainability Summer School, a postdoctoral position in scaling theory, and a handful of staff positions here in Santa Fe. Learn more at santafe.edu. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please help us reach a wider audience by subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show on social media. Thank you for listening. Awesome. Albert Cow, it's a pleasure to join you here amidst the complexity. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I like to start these conversations by inviting you to talk a little bit about how you became a scientist in the first place, uh, how you became interested in what you're researching and what led you to the Santa Fe Institute. Yeah, I don't know if I'm out of the ordinary here at SFI, but I feel like compared to the average scientist, I've had a pretty loopy trajectory to get to where I am today. I think I first started getting interested in physics in middle school. And for some reason, I thought I was supposed to be a medical doctor. I thought that was like a family expectation. Uh, And then I I learned about the structure of the atom in seventh grade and came home to my parents and was like, I think I want to be a physicist. Uh, Is it okay if I'm not a doctor? And they were like, we never said you had to be one. (laughs) So yeah, then in college, I majored in physics and then got interested in biophysics and biology started grad school in a biophysics program 
and did some rotations in biomechanics labs, uh, neuroscience labs, and then came to the realization, or at least the belief, that neuroscience was too difficult, <laughs> or that we were like a long ways, like decades off from like a full understanding of a brain. And then I learned about um, animal groups and how the structure and the function of animal groups in a lot of ways mimics the structure and function of brains. Obviously, there's a lot of differences as well. So it seemed like a more tractable system to study decision-making in like collective systems. And so you can control the group size, you can interrogate it and perturb it in different ways that I thought was not feasible at the time in neural systems. And yeah, did my PhD studying animal groups and then learned that they're not that easy to study either. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's this is, I, th I think we'll probably keep coming back and back to this as we do sort of as a meta on the show in general, which is that a lot of these things, you know, they may be easier to study in one system or at one scale, but then you end up taking this circuitous path through disciplines, realizing that you're studying something very similar to what you thought was very different once upon a time. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think my academic path has been very torturous, but also I think I get a lot of insights. Like, I'm glad I know something about neuroscience. I'm glad I know something about physics and applying all of that um, seemingly random knowledge to study different animal groups has been super useful. Right on. So I th I'd like to start as broadly as we possibly can, because your work takes a lot of different angles to this issue of animal sociality. But it is an interesting question that you raise in your work about why organisms would end up sort of channeled down the path of least resistance into evolutionary adaptation for sociality. Frankly, as long as I've been thinking about this, I was kind of embarrassed to realize that I had been naive about there being only, you know, maybe only one reason why animals would choose a social organization. And your research suggests that there are multiple reasons for this. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, so we, I and other postdocs here at SFI and also postdocs on the James uh, McDonald Foundation Fellowship have been working on this project to look super broadly across the tree of life from bacteria to insects to birds to mammals and look at the literature and see what are all the different ways being social can benefit an organism. And there's so many different ways, just dozens, probably hundreds of hypothetical ways in which being social can help you. Raising offspring, raising them together, you can provide more food for them or defend against predators. You can huddle and keep warm together. You can uh, sometimes decrease the risk of disease by like picking fleas off each other, but oftentimes you can also increase risk of disease. Um, and a lot of these benefits have to do with getting resources. So whether it's like locating prey or capturing prey, maybe as a group you can capture larger prey items than you could alone. Maybe once you catch a prey, you can defend the prey against other animals who might steal it from you. So we documented just dozens and dozens of these different benefits. But then one thing that I thought was cool about this project is that we categorized them into fundamentally different kinds of benefits. So in terms of like getting resources, we found that there's basically six kinds of ways in which sociality can be beneficial. And there's also lots of ways, and specifically in different contexts, where that benefit can play out and manifest itself. But fundamentally, we found there's, there's only six different ways in which being social can help you get resources. Correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems like you can kind of loosely say that it's about um, metabolic, like you said, resource acquisition or energy saving, huddling for warmth, or that there is a like a decision-making benefit. And those, you know, the, the uh, collective computation, right, broadly, those two things seem like in a way, really intimately related. And that's one of the things, again, that seems like a, a, an overarching theme about a lot of the work that's being done here, which is how do we articulate, how do, how do we unify a physics of information and a physics of thermodynamics? And so, like, maybe I'm getting ahead of the conversation here, but talk a little bit about specifically, you know, when we're talking about 
collective biological computation. What do we mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess I alluded to it a few minutes ago about the sort of like mapping potentially between neural systems and animal groups. Um, and that's the bulk of the research that I've done so far is thinking about what unique computational abilities does being social get you for free, basically? And is it easier to evolve social interactions compared to evolving a larger brain, for example, or better individual sensory um, organs like eyes or ears? Can you just like combine a bunch of ears together, like crappy ears, and then have a lot better power compared to evolving a more precise ear? Approximately, you can apply that in a lot of different cases. So you can get food better if you're searching together and like looking for prey together. You can detect and run away from predators better, but also things like migration, detecting the north or south or following landmarks and things like that. A lot of these models assume that individuals are guessing independently of each other. We know in real life, a lot of estimates aren't independent. Like we all read a small number of newspapers probably, or listen to a small number of radio shows. And so our opinions about certain topics are not generally independent, but they're correlated because we, we read the same stuff. So I asked, like, what effect does that have on collective decision-making? And one pretty robust result that I got was that this leads to some optimal group size for decision-making, that in contrast to the basic assumption that um, decision accuracy increases monotonically with group size, so it just increases more and more as groups get larger, uh, in fact, in these environments where you have correlations, you get some optimal group size. So like 10 or 15 is best and larger groups do worse and smaller groups do worse. So this is related to the conversation I had with Mirta Galasic on the show where, you know, she was looking at related research on, on optimal group size for decision-making. You know, the thing that uh, I like about both of your research and her, her research you mentioned it actually in the, in this Quanta magazine article where you're you're commenting on uh, another research paper mm -hmm. about uh, you know collective decision making. But you say it, it feels like what you're doing is a second wave of research. The first wave was naive enthusiasm for collective systems. So it's like you know like there has been a surge even recently in the last few years of interest and evangelizing about the wisdom of crowds. Mm -hmm. But you know I think you're right to point out this particular nuance, which is we ourselves are social creatures and, you know, working online in, in social media, it's clear that certain people's voices have disproportionate impact and that adding more people who just agree with someone due to uh, charisma or whatever, isn't actually making the collective any smarter. Um, you know, I was, it, it was, it was easy to read, this paper, decision accuracy in complex environments is often maximized by small group sizes that you did with Ian Cousin. And like you said, to see in it a clear analogy to the way that our media landscape has changed over the last few decades, the way that we're no longer unanimously correlated in everyone's reading the same newspaper. But now we have sort of an opposite problem, which is that there are too many contradicting news sources. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious how you understand the problems of communication at scale in modern society in light of, of your research, you know, whether there is any insights into, given the media landscape that we have, should we be making more of an effort to be reading the same thing? Or, does, or should we be making a, an effort to change the size of the groups in which we are making decisions based on the fragmentation of information? Yeah, it's kind of a dual problem as well, uh, not to make it worse. But like you said, there's the media landscape. So how many different news sources are we paying attention to? What is the influence of the most powerful ones? But secondly, also the fact that with social media, we talk to each other a lot more. So this is not my work, but a follow-up work by other researchers found a similar phenomenon that I did. But here, correlations came about because of social influence. So... Um, an individual in this model could look at the decisions of its previous group mates and then make its own decision based on its own information, but also by looking at these previous decisions. They found a similar thing where you get an optimal group size, and we think there's a strong mapping between my paper and their paper where there's something to do with correlations being generated, not by an external force here, but by social interactions. So this global social media landscape 
kind of ties these two papers together where people are talking to each other a lot more, but also maybe the topics of conversation are being dominated by a small number of influential people or news organizations. So what to do about that? <laughs> it's a challenge being a theorist to try to map um, these simple abstract models to the real world, whether it's animals or humans. Because ideally, that's what we want to do. We want to say something useful about the world and try to make the world a better place. But at the same time, I think we have to be careful about how how we interpret these models. They are very simple. And so what features, I mean, again, what features are we missing that we would need to add in order to be more confident in the kinds of recommendations we make to policymakers or to the public or to um, companies. And like I've said previously, with work that I've already done, adding some of these features can really change the predictions of your model. So we have to be careful and make sure that we're incorporating all of the really important features and leaving out sort of less important ones. So we are also talking not just about the paper I just mentioned, but we're also referencing this other paper that you wrote. You were the lead author on a paper counteracting estimation bias and social influence to improve the wisdom of crowds. And so, you know, some of what you said is coming straight out of this paper. You know, one of the things that I found interesting is that your team played a trick in this particular study where you seeded what you were telling people was social information about other people's estimates and seeing if it would change their decisions, their estimates. And that over a third of the participants completely discounted the social information. 231 out of 602 participants were, were immune to this sort of hack. Yeah. And I'm curious, this might be a tangent, but I'm curious why you think some people were weighting social information uh, more greatly than other people and why some people don't consider it at all. Yeah, so we don't have direct data on why those people decided to ignore social information. So this is all speculation. It could be that there's a certain fraction of the population that are just generally immune, uh, regardless of context. It could also be the case where in this particular estimation task, which was a simple jelly bean jar estimation <laughs> task, which we got a lot of mileage off of. We did some experiments here at SFI. You'd be surprised at how poorly some people guessed, um, <laughs> despite knowing all the theory about like packing fractions and spherical objects and things like that. Anyway, but yeah, so they, they could be really confident um, on the specific task, and therefore, because they were confident, they discounted social information. And there's other papers in the literature showing that confidence can correlate with um, social influence or you know, propensity to be influenced by social information. There's a separate question of whether confidence correlates with actual ability. And mm. we know like the whole Denning-Kruger <laughs> work um, that maybe not, or maybe even a negative correlation. We anecdotally, we had, we interviewed a couple people from this experiment and asked them why they guessed the way they guessed. Some people were were very poor guessers, but very confident. So if I could just like quickly tell like two anecdotes. Please. Two, so, uh, so there was like roughly like 600 jelly beans in this jar. Guesses ranged from like 80 to 10,000. So super wide range of guesses. We interviewed the guy, one of the guys who guessed really low, like 80 something. Uh, he was an undergrad at Princeton who's majoring either in physics or engineering. And he did all his calculations and came up with like 85 or something. And the actual number was like 600. It's like way off. Another dude guessed 10,000. And so we asked him why. <laughs> and he was like a jelly bean delivery man. He's like, oh, I do this for like a living. Like I know, I like look at that jelly bean, like I know the size. It's like for sure 10,000 on that order. And I was like, okay, you're off by, you know, one and a half orders of magnitude. But um, <laughs> so yeah, it's like in, in this task, it was a pretty seemingly easy task, but then very hard for humans to do. And we had a super wide range of guesses, but sort of in classic wisdom of crowds fashion, we found that the average of those guesses was pretty close to the, to the true answer. So this paper gets a little bit more into how you can correct for those kinds of intense biases that you're talking about. Yeah. One of the figures talks about there being a, a relation between the 
the, the probability that an individual is affected by social information and their displacement in the society. This is interesting because this, this kind of segues, I would say the question lurking behind this, this whole conversation for me is when are larger and smaller groups adaptable? And what settings are groups of different sizes the best decision for the complexity of a particular problem, you know, given a, you know, a society of a particular structure? Like you said, it's a simple jelly bean counting exercise. But the question about social influence seems to be related to, uh, like, you know, like your other work you were talking about on correlation of sensory inputs, which is related to this other paper you wrote with Ian Cousin on modularity and how groups can naturally start forming modular subgroups in order to improve their, their decision-making ability. So I'm curious, what a messy question, but (laughs) there, there seems to be, you know, to, to add another fold to this, you know, when we're talking about groups, we're talking about groups that are not homogeneous. They have a structure. There are, you know, people are in different locations within that group um, they're not just seeing different things outside of the group. They're they're having different informational relationships within the group. So possibly the the actual question I'm asking is for you to talk a little bit about this paper uh, on on modularity and uh, why you found this kind of counterintuitive result, which is that sometimes these you know if you break a group up, it, you end up with a better decision at the le- the level of. You know, when everyone comes back together to compare notes and yeah, so that yeah, so that paper, uh, instead of looking at one group, say making decisions by majority rule, um, what if they it was structured so that they exist in subgroups? So say subgroups make decisions, say by majority rule, and then the decisions of the subgroups get combined, and so on and so forth. You can have as many tiers as you want in this hierarchy until you get one consensus decision. And we studied that because there's some evidence in the literature that a lot of animal groups exist in some sort of modular structure like that. Whether it's something as simple as fish schools, um, if you track the motion of each fish in a school, you find that subgroups of fish stay together longer than you would expect if they were just randomly mixing, up to like actual hierarchies like primate societies or elephants that live in family groups, but then the family groups are connected over large, large spatial scales um, to each other. And so the first thing that we found there was that these modular structures always result in a loss of information. So we think the general idea is that the wisdom of crowds works because the, the group has more information than each individual and having more information is better. Um, and so they make a better decision. So we found that modular structure always leads to a loss of information. And so you would guess that that would be bad for collective wisdom, which in some cases it is true. But in the correlation context, we found the opposite was true, that having the structure could actually improve. It still leads to information loss, but paradoxically, it can lead to uh, gains in decision accuracy. And this ties into the whole optimal group size result that we talked about earlier, because what modular structure does is it allows groups to behave as if they were a smaller group um, because of this loss of information. So a group of a thousand in, with some sort of modular structure has the, effectively the information of, say, a group of size 60 or something. And if you have an optimal group size that's smaller than your actual group size, then what we think is that one strategy groups could use in order to make better decisions is to behave as if they were smaller by creating this modular structure. And we think that, especially for animal groups, this could be really useful and and interesting because, like we said at the start of this talk, there's tons of reasons why being social can benefit you. And so for certain benefits, it might be better to be in a large group, for example, um, defending against predators. And then for other benefits, it might be better to be in a small group, like decision-making. And so having this modular structure kind of gets you the best of both worlds where you can actually be a big group and defend against predators, but then in a decision-making context, you behave as if you're a smaller group. So it just seems like a really interesting way in which animals and groups can tune what we call the effective group size for different contexts. This 
seems somewhat related to uh, research you mentioned elsewhere, that there's a negative correlation between the size of an ant colony and the size of the individual ant brains. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've, I remember uh, David Krakauer talking at UBS for an Action Network meeting earlier last year, where he was, you know, he was saying something similar about, you know, the more we are embed ourselves in this information technology milieu, the more we are, you know, outboarding cognitive resources and relying on these these collective computations, and so you know, there's a kind of an expectation that's a pretty common expectation that we're getting dumber as individuals as as the collective of humanity is getting smarter. Yeah, we just Google everything instead yeah. of remembering things. <laughs> yeah. And and then you know the uh, Quanta article that you were commenting on comes up a lot in conversations in the Facebook group and elsewhere about a similar thing. Where like the you know if the memory of nodes in a network is too long then the network loses adaptability it like it becomes kind of dumber and so there there are all of these different ways that it seems as though the networks within individuals are shaped and in some sense constrained by the selection pressure on the networks of individuals you know, and like at the at the moment, like this is Jessica Flack's work on on coarse graining as downward causation. You know, this seems like what you're talking about, that the modular structure allows the collective social organism to coarse grain the information that it's getting and and make a a, a better judgment. I mean, wh what do you think of all this? Yeah, I think it, I don't know. I, I I think we don't know very much about the relationship between individual cognition and collective cognition. I think as, say, physicists studying collective behavior, there's a natural tendency, like aesthetically, to say, um, to ask the question, how dumb can the individual components be to still have this interesting collective ability? Aesthetically, that's like something that, that people in my field like to show. It's like, oh, you can have this awesome collective ability and look, the individuals can be like so dumb and still have it, right? <laughs> so there's like an interesting, like you get so much at the collective level. But I think that's not the right question to ask. I think the question should be, what is the relationship between individual cognition and co co uh, collective cognition? Like, why should you have dumb components when you're in a group? Or can you have smart components and even smarter collective abilities? What is there some trade-off between the two where maybe there's an energetic trade-off where by offloading computation from individual brains and doing it collectively through social interactions, are you saving metabolic energy or something like that? Or is there some computational bottleneck if you have individual components that are too smart? So yeah, I was talking to a visitor here a few months ago, and he actually brought up that observation from the literature showing that in a certain subgroup of ants, the larger the colony, the smaller the brain size of the individual ants. And so we were brainstorming you know, is there a fundamental reason why that might be the case? I think it's brand, it's it's wide open. I think we know very little about it. And I think it's a really cool area for future research. But also I think it's another, to harken back to an earlier point, why I want to be cautious when applying some of these results to humans, which are, we think, quite smart most of the time, sometimes. Um, <laughs> so they're not just simple automata making decisions through majority rule. You know, they can, like, have conversations with each other. They can influence each other. There's all these sorts of subtle signals that they send to each other. And so people like Mirta, who are more sociologists or others who are psychologists, I think linking that sort of understanding of the human brain to, to these theoretical models of collective decision-making and to animal groups can be a really interesting intersection of these Venn diagrams of related but different areas of research. I think now seems like a good time to, to ask the question we've been dancing around this whole time, which is from all of these different research vectors, I, I feel like you must have developed by now an intuition for the evolutionary context within which you're going to see large groups form that are benefiting from the wisdom of crowds and the kinds of decisions 
that the group has to make for, for that to be the way to go. And then when those large groups might want to specialize into some sort of hierarchical structure so that there's a, there's differences in influence when a group might want to correlate itself over, you know, very strongly over a small geographic area, when it makes more sense to spread out, when are crowds wise, when are they dumb? You know, these, these, these sort of these deeper questions that are alluded to by all of your research, like if you were to create a handbook to this kind of a thing, I know you've already made it clear you're you're very careful about it, policy advisement, yeah. but it's clear there was a, an Eon magazine article by a bunch of SFI people, you know, Doyne Farmer, mm-hmm. uh, Beinhocker, Rasmussen, and and uh, non-SFI author uh, Fantina Marcapulu just wrote this great piece on the the lag between our physical technologies and our social technologies. And s- most of the people I know that are smart, young folks working in technology are deeply concerned about how can we better organize ourselves? How can we organize ourselves more smartly to handle the complexity of the problems that we're facing? So that's totally. the motivation for this kind of a question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I've, I've been like prefacing everything with like, I, I don't want to like go on record making very specific recommendations. However, I do think it's super important. A friend of mine and collaborator just got a bunch of people, including me together to write this perspectives piece on this, where he calls collective behavior, a crisis discipline. So I believe it was coined for conservation biology. And it's the same thing where for conservation biology, it's like we don't have a full understanding of ecological systems, yet these habitats are being destroyed super rapidly. And so we need to make some sort of decision about what to do, even with imperfect information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this perspectives piece is making a, the same argument, but for collective behavior, where so many people are online for so much of the day, uh, on Twitter, Facebook, whatever, and this is having meaningful impacts on political systems, like public discourse, all these things. And by the same time, we have a poor understanding of collective behavior the state space is so large, right? There's different like sizes of groups, there's different network structures, there's different decision contexts, there's all sorts of variables that we need to play around with ideally in experiments. And yet we can't wait another 10 years or 20 years before uh, we start to make recommendations. And so this piece I think is really interesting and important because it makes me feel so uncomfortable. That it's like, okay, (laughs) say in the next like two years, what what should we do? What kind of experiments should we do? What kind of modeling should we do now in the next two years in order to say something concrete about how to regulate these companies or how should governments um, counteract bad actors on these networks or other governments, even if we're not completely confident of what we know? Um, we still have to say something and not saying anything at all is also a decision. And so... Yeah, th- th- despite and because of my reluctance, uh, <laughs> we like wrote this piece. And I think it's it's really important. It's really urgent, as we know from every news cycle. Mm. So just to anchor this a little bit, in the discussion on your paper on, on modularity, you and Cousin, you say silencing the minority opinion within subgroups, modularity necessarily causes a loss of information. In general, modular structure is detrimental to collective decision accuracy in simple environments. But you know, I was thinking about this in terms of the conversation I had with Andy Dobson recently and island biogeography and how it seems like if we want to take this another way, maybe a more comfortable analogy in the biological rather than the social, that it seems like genetic drift is helping to accomplish something similar in population biogeography that, you know, that when you have a large population on land through the grace of genetic drift alone, a lot of these edge opinions, if you will, mutations that don't necessarily have a a benefit or a detriment, just are lost in the wash. Uh, Whereas on a smaller island, you get a different kind of decision making. And so I'm curious how how you think that this work on decision making might shed more light onto processes that are not intentional or decisive in the way that we would understand them, how cognition might 
be recognized or understood at the level of ecological networks rather than individual organisms working in association with one another. Yeah. I mean, if I understand your question correctly, the thing that links those islands together and these social systems together, especially the modular ones, is diversity, right? So in islands, since they're isolated from each other, you get diversity of genetic material that can then more fit than other variants. And similarly with the social systems, what's really important is diversity of opinion. And so if you have some very influential person, even if that person is very smart, um, you miss out on that collective wisdom that you get just from diversity of opinion. And a lot of that is noise, you know? Um, each individual person could be very noisy and very inaccurate, but then there's some process, which we're still trying to understand, in which the, the average can be quite good. And so, yeah, creating modular structures can permit, in a similar way to islands, isolation from other opinions, and you can breed different opinions within each subgroup, which many of them might be bad, but then the average of them or some combination of them can be quite good. Yeah, you know, it, it seems almost to me, and I, I, you know, I might be stretching this to the breaking point, but it seems almost as though, you know, if you think about evolution as a as a as a cognitive process, then the diversity of biological computation is a reflection of or an epiphenomenon of the geographic and environmental diversity, and so there's almost a a conservation argument here. Uh, that's like similar to the argument made about like ethnobotanical conservation that like we don't know what we're losing by destroying, you know, by homogenizing habitats, because then we're ultimately homogenizing the cognitive strategies available to us moving forward. Yeah. I mean, people talk about there's like pros and cons, obviously, <laughs> to <laughs> things like social media, where you you permit the formation of really niche groups uh, where, uh, say, like globally, there might only be a handful of people or 100 people or whatever who have some niche interest. And so if they were to seek each other out geographically, it would be impossible. But on the Internet, you can find each other, make a subreddit. Now you're connected. Um, and that can be good and bad, right, depending on, you know, what those people are interested in. <laughs> so, yeah, I think some of the conversation in the media focuses on the negative you know like nazis can find each other more easily and communicate online and things like that so how do we find them how do we discourage those kinds of groups and forming but also it could be positive just by breeding diversity of thought and diversity of opinion you, you just get more raw material to work like humanity gets more raw material to work with and perhaps in some sense that's not the the worst thing once in a while we might generate some like awesome idea from it and make some forward progress, but then also we need to filter out some of the neutral or even actively harmful elements as well. So it's a balance between taking a really forceful top-down approach to regulating things on the internet, but also permitting a diversity of opinion to still bubble up from the, from the bottom up. When I think about this stuff, it, it, I think about it in terms of the cost of innovation. Yeah. This is this may be out of place, but there's that theological argument that you know you, it's like you can't have choice without evil, right? And it's a very similar kind of exactly. scientific formulation yeah. of that same thing. That's like, you know, if we want to encourage creative solutions, then there is a certain amount of accepting the the fact that those structures also empower individuals to raise the bar on existential risk of civilization, et cetera. Yeah. I think one interesting question is like, do can you differentiate between say like good things and bad things on the <laughs> internet um, in some way so that you can control one and, but also allow the other to persist. And I think there is some evidence about that. There was a paper that came out a couple years ago showing that false news spreads on Twitter differently than true news. It's, it spreads like faster and like, penetrates more deeply into the social network. And so there might be signatures. There might be signatures of, you know, good things and bad things. And then by detecting, by classifying those two, 
maybe we could identify and target false news and uh, while allow true news to... I don't know. It's, it's very speculative, but there's some. There might be something there as a strategy. Interesting, actually. You know, you're you're reminding me of of currently unpublished by Josh Garland and Mirta Galasic on the network structures of conversations on Twitter, and they were, you know, like they were talking about how somebody who has an inflammatory post that just generates responses to the original post rather than a, a debate that branches. It's like got a higher fractal dimension. Like, it, you know, you, there's more branches because people are taking the time to respond to things in, you know, sub points and sub sub points. That work suggests that we can actually take an orbital view on different conversations and identify whether they're worth getting involved in. Like you, you talk about elsewhere in your work, we, we were talking about earlier, the degree correlation uh, of, you know, like when, when everything is correlated to that original comment versus when, you know, everybody is, is coming at it from a different angle and looking at a different piece of it. And that that's, in, in a way, it's almost, I, you know, I might be overstretching it here, but it, I, I look at Garland and Galasic's work on that stuff and I see that there might be a way for us to talk about good things and bad things online in terms of whether they actually facilitate collective decision-making in an, in an effective way or whether they are actively draining our mental resources and creating these, these uh, self-replicating viral structures that just absorb our brains, you know? Yeah. And I guess like a, a, a thing to add on to what we're talking about with like modular structure permitting diversity of opinion and maybe that could be good is that I guess the corollary to that is that you also need them to talk to each other eventually like these mo these different modules at some point need to now that you've like generalized the diversity you need to talk to each other and then you know create your improved solution and perhaps the counter argument is that in our current state that's not happening right be like factions are becoming more and more polarized and there's no sign of that reversing in trend. So maybe that's like the missing piece. We're like, yes, these factions might serve some purpose, but only if at some point in the future you come back to the table and and talk and make decisions together. So like that seems, seems to be what's missing currently in the state of play, either on the internet or in politics. This seems like the perfect place to bring up the last paper I wanted to talk with you about that you just published the, the preprint on the wisdom of stalemates. Obviously, most people find a stalemate immensely frustrating. But yeah, it, it sounds like you're, you know, you've got an argument here that viewed from the level of the social organism, a stalemate actually has evolutionary value, that there are good reasons for us to get to these points. So could you unpack that a little? Yeah, in most models, and the models we've talked about uh, in this conversation usually plays out like this. You have some decision scenario, individuals get information, maybe they talk to each other. At the end of the day, the group has to make a, some sort of collective decision. So we ask the question, what if they don't have to? <laughs> <laughs> what if there's a third option of, so usually these are binary scenarios where you have option A, option B, you have to choose one. So we ask, what if there's a third scenario in which you can have a stalemate and just have no decision? what effect does that have? And so we analyze the, the scenarios that um, we've talked about already, simple environments in which the wisdom of crowds comes about, and then more complicated scenarios like the ones with correlations and things like that. And we found that stalemates can be almost always good for collective accuracy because you reach a stalemate more often in cases where if you were forced to make a collective decision, you would have made a bad one, like the incorrect one. And so this stalemates can save you from making a bad decision and put off the decision to another day in which you're more likely to make a better decision. The value of stalemates obviously depends on the cost of a stalemate compared to the cost or benefit of option A versus option B. And so if stalemates are super costly, then you don't you don't want to use that strategy. Um, so, for example, like if you're a school of fish and a shark is coming at you full speed, and you're trying to decide what is the best direction to run away in, it kind of doesn't matter, right? Like, but whatever direction is like better than the shark direction, and so it doesn't matter what it <laughs> into is. the net. Yeah. 
So stalemates are the worst. Pick any direction. Uh, so you don't want to use a stalemate there. But in a lot of cases, to go back to fish, stalemates might be not costly at all. Like a lot of fish hide out in weeds, just like hiding out, avoiding predators, and only come out once in a while to look for food. And so if you're not sure where food is, it doesn't really matter. You can just hide out some more. Um, it's pretty safe. And then wait a little while, try to make a decision again. And then when you do make a decision, uh, because you allow stalemates, that decision is more likely to be accurate and you'll find food and avoid predators um, with a higher probability. So I thought this paper was really cool and it was spearheaded by Claudia Winkelmeyer, who's now a PhD student in Berlin. And it introduces this idea of stalemates as possibly useful function in some cases for animals, maybe humans. We haven't thought too much about that, but yeah, instead of casting stalemates in a like uniformly negative light, that in some scenarios it could actually be really useful for collective accuracy. Well, I hope I don't offend anyone uh, who loves me by saying this sounds a whole lot like the way most people describe their marriage to shoot from the hip yet again. It sounds almost like this work is uh, analogous to other work that has suggested, you know, that there are like, it's like a Locke to Volterra equation. You know, there are stable populations of predator and prey in balance with each other. If you regard each one as a sort of evolutionary model of its environment, then you don't want either of them to win the game, right? You know, if each one, if, if, if every or type of organism is a, a sort of a proposal by the biosphere about how the world is, then the entire biosphere is the actual answer to that question, right? The wisest people I know are more than willing to include, to cross the aisle and engage in uh, synthetic discourse with people that they, they violently disagree with. If you, if you start to see it the way that I feel your research paints things, then political polarization may be actually adaptive at the level of the, the society that you have these sort of, you know, like, or like in, in philosophy, materialism and, and idealism are these completely robust positions that neither one of them seems to have been able to win out against the other for thousands of years. And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to be like bold here, I, I feel like seeing your work in a certain way sort of allows one to restore their faith in humanity, <laughs> because you realize that all the people that you think are idiots that you disagree with are contributing to a more intelligent, more creative society. And that, you know, if everyone agreed with you, we'd probably go off the cliff right away. Yeah. Yeah. There's a collective cognition, probably a collective memory as well, where culturally we're storing all of these different ideas and beliefs into our cultural cloud. And um, any one person in that society will disagree with the majority of those but it's useful to have those as like a library of ideas and not even a stockpile of ideas, but like a generator of, of new ideas and new directions of thought and, and inventions. Um, and yeah, as an optimistic note, to, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that could be um, a really useful function of, yeah, social interactions, culture, society. And if we were homogenous and we all agreed with each other, then something's wrong. We're doing something wrong. We're not taking full advantage of what we could as a, as a culture. I guess just to send everyone out on a, a note of curiosity and intellectual adventure, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about the questions that are animating you right now in your research. Like what's on the horizon for you? What do you feel is naggingly, painfully unresolved? Yeah. So I think at the start of this conversation, I was talking about this paper we just finished about this broad view of why are organisms social? And that I thought, I think that's very thought provoking. And so in that paper, what we found is that how group sizes change under different conditions can be really informative about why a species is social. So um, say in drought conditions, when food becomes really scarce, uh, a lot of animal groups get smaller. It's like lions, um, things like which makes sense kind of intuitively to us. 
Um, but then other groups get bigger when food gets scarce. So some bacteria, locusts form these swarms when food runs out. Our model found that whether group sizes increase or decrease or they don't change really reflects the underlying reason why they're social. And I think that's a really simple but big question. Like why are animals so like fundamentally, what's the major reason why this species is social or that species is social? Um, and we have guesses. So for fish, a lot of times we think it's for predator avoidance or for locusts, it's to find food. But we don't really know that for sure for any species. When I was working on this paper, I was thinking that it's so important to know why. For example, if you scanned across the tree of life and really figured out if you had like a trillion dollars of research money and, you know, <laughs> 10,000 undergrads, uh, <laughs> you could figure out why, specifically why are each of these thousand species social. And it'd be so interesting to look at that catalog. Is it that there's a certain benefit of so uh, sociality that dominates across the tree of life? It's like, oh, it tends to be this one benefit and then rarely is it this other benefit. And you can think broadly about the evolution of sociality. So maybe if that was the case, maybe a lot of organisms became social for a similar reason, and then they accrued other benefits secondarily, like flying into V formation for energetics or whatever. Maybe that's a secondary benefit. So I think looking at this super zoomed out view of the tree of life and sociality from bacteria to elephants to birds and trying to think of like what's the distribution of benefits why are they social how do they evolve to be social for me has been really thought-provoking becoming social is a major transition in evolution it's tied to multicellularity it's tied to evolution of eusociality so i think understanding very broadly why things are social takes us some distance to understanding evolution in general and biology in general Awesome. Very important questions. Yes. I hope so. <laughs> right on. Well, Albert, thank you so much for indulging all of my freewheeling nonsense and telling people about your super fascinating work. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks for giving me the space to talk about my research. It's been really fun. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.